Hi, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just finished speaking to Caroline Ford about her new book, Natural Interests, the Contest Over the Environment in Modern France. This book was released by Harvard University Press in 2016. Ford's book shows how French environmental consciousness did not begin in the post-war period, but stretches back into the 18th and 19th centuries. Ford explores the actors and popularizers of environmental thinking, the crisis of resource depletion, and French romanticism for the natural world. War, environmental disaster, and revolution exposed the fragility of the nation and its dependence on a habitable and sanitary space for French society. Deforestation, urban life, and industrial capitalism required a critical reassessment of the human capacity to cause rapid environmental damage. Empire, art, politics, and national identity hinges on the preservation of forests and public green space well before the contemporary discourses of the environmental movement in the 1960s and 1970s. It was a pleasure to talk to Caroline, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today we'll be speaking with Caroline Ford about her new book, Natural Interests, Contests Over the Environment in Modern France. Caroline is a professor of history at UCLA. Caroline, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get into the book, I'd like to ask you a few questions. First, what made you decide to become a historian? Well, uh, actually, my undergraduate degrees um, are in French and English literature. Okay. And as I took history courses um, at the same time, and um, during my junior year, I went to France and spent a year there and increasingly um, became disenchanted with um, the way in which the study of literature was being done and became more interested in actually the context in which the literature was produced. And it's really from that starting point that I got into history. And so um, when I got my BA, which was not in history, um, I applied to graduate school in history um, and went to the University of Chicago. I guess that that sort of explains uh, environmental history to a certain extent. Uh, Why uh, Your other books were sort of interested in uh, religion and some other topics. What, what got you into environmental history in particular? Well, there is a link in a way. I mean, I'm a historian who, there are historians who sort of plow the same kind of ground uh, throughout their entire career. They work on the French mm-hmm. Revolution and they publish five books on different aspects of the French Revolution. Um, I'm a historian who has a lot of different kinds of interests and perhaps because of my uh, background in another field, um, I, I consider myself really a social, political historian, and more recently an environmental historian. However, I, my first book was on um, was called Creating the Nation in, in Provincial France, Religion and Political Identity in Brittany, and it's on a rural region of France. In fact, one of the most rural regions of France. Okay. And the, the, the subject was really how this region became integrated into the nation state. And in the context of that, 
Um, I did a lot of work in rural history, peasant societies, uh, how they were organized, and this is part of um, um, really a study that's very well established in France, comes out of the Annales School. And so, you know, environmental history itself in France, it's, it's, as I mentioned in my introduction, it's come to France in that packaged form, environmental history, relatively late. But you could mm -hmm. say that the French have been doing a form of environmental history really since the 20s and 30s, and it is associated with the Annales School. So there is an element um, in my very first book, my doctoral dissertation, that links the book that has just come out and uh, how I began. I don't know if that answers that exactly. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting. I, I, uh, I was like uh, reading maybe the first fifty pages, and you did not, you did not explicitly talk so much about annals. But I was like, oh, this sounds like uh, Ferdinand Burdell, like uh, mm. uh, the Mediterranean in well, uh, when, the age of the second. When you think about um, somebody like Burdell and his work on the Mediterranean, or other annal historians. They were Le Roi who at the end of his career was interested in climate history. Really, the, the impact um, of the environment over the long durée, um, which they thought had a you know, very important role that historians had neglected in focusing on politics um, or social organization. Yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting, especially um, when you think about climate. This book so much is about... Um, uh, you know, sort of uh, destruction of lands and, and uh, deforestation and, and how these things change climate and how even in the um, 18th century, there were sort of inklings that this this was going to be a serious problem and that France's uh, climate was being changed by human interaction, mm -hmm. which is really interesting uh, because even, even in our own day, there are people that will sort of, you know, say, oh, well, you know, humans can't have any real tangible effect on, you know, long-term weather patterns and these sorts of things. So it's an interesting... Um, Interesting uh, subject matter for sure. I, I think one of the things we should talk about as well in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, you talk about how uh, for the long, longest time, the historiography on modern France has sort of uh, said, well, you know, the environment wasn't really a subject in French society until the post-war period. But you, you really push back and say, hey, wait, like people were really thinking about this seriously um, all the way back to. Uh, you know, revolutionary times, and even before that to a certain extent. Yeah, I mean, going back really to uh, the 17th century and the historian who um, really, I think, opened up this topic or the question once again and really challenged before, long before me uh, this whole notion that environment, environmentalism as a movement or as a set of ideas is something associated with Northern Europe, the United States, Scandinavia, and so on, is, is Richard Grove and his book Green Imperialism, which actually looked at several French administrators in what he called the tropical island Edens in the Indian Ocean and saw that in the 17th century they were thinking about um, resources were not um, inexhaustible, uh, deforestation, all these kinds of elements. And so I think I'm not alone in challenging this, but it has become a kind of orthodoxy. Um, the American historian who's perhaps most associated um, 
with this notion that it's a post-World War II phenomenon is Michael Bess um, in his book, uh, The Light Green Society, um, which he published in the 90s. And he actually calls the whole period in which I am looking at the prehistory of environmentalism. It's not a real environmentalism. And I think a lot of the reasons for this view is that environmentalism is defined in this very, very narrow late 20th century terms. It has to be a certain kind. It's got to be associated with a certain kind of politics. It has to be a political movement in one form or another. And that's why I actually, in my book, wanted to broaden out um, the actual concept and use the term environmental consciousness. And um, not interchangeably, um, but sometimes interchangeably with environmentalism. Yeah, one of the things that attracted me to this book, and it's several of our uh, listeners will probably remember uh, my interview with Peter Thorsheim about his book on uh, uh, the Second World War and, and recycling, and how uh, we, it, again, in his book, he sort of confronts this idea that, well, you know, the environment becomes a subject in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. And actually, he going back, he says, "Oh yeah, people were recycling dur- during the First World War because of because of uh, resource um, constraints and, and the need to do that." And one thing I saw in your book is that certainly the discourse on forests was, "Oh, we we have to keep these forests because they're sort of uh, resources that we need for uh, building uh, military goods like ships and and these types of things." Mm-hmm. And that if if you let the market uh, go at these things and privatize them completely that people will just cash out and you know destroy these resources and they might even uh, put the uh, security of the state at risk yeah yeah and that um, I think is is really something that you find I mean even in the legislation the 1669 forest one of the first comprehensive forest legislations that's the major concern it's actually strategic military concerns that lead people to think about conservation, but it's not a 1960s conservation in any sense, but I don't think one can discount it, in other words. Um, Mm -hmm. One has to really look at where ideas of conservation come from, and conservation has a long history, a much longer history. Sure. I mean, I I think this might be a good uh, point to get into the book and talk about chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, where you discuss uh, uh, Francois Rauch's New Harmony of Nature mm-hmm. and nature as a monument to be protected. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what you're trying to achieve in this chapter and, and maybe just talk about Rauch? Because it's a really interesting 18th, early 19th century figure who, you know, sort of courts the French Revolution, but also courts Napoleon and has a sort of post-Napoleonic career as well. Yeah. In some ways, uh, Rauch, I mean, he's considered, people refer to him as the father of French ecology. And you can see why. But what's interesting is nobody's really written about him in any systematic way, in part because he was a bit of a nut. Yeah. <laughs> look at this whole, and I, I think, was the first person who really dug into his the archives, the administrative file, this voluminous correspondence he he was you know had this grandiosity and he was very full of himself as a figure but what i found very interesting about him is that he's not you know some great thinker he's not buffon the comte de buffon mm-hmm. or 
some of the 18th century naturalists that um, the sort of the highbrow that pe- that the history of science people uh, pe- will study. He was a popularizer, and he basically picked up ideas of physiocracy, um, agronomy, all kinds of different ideas, and put them together in a very interesting way, and did actually come up with this whole idea of um, a harmony of nature, and um, was one of the first to actually talk about nature as a monument. And so I really, um, this is a chapter that I, I, I don't know if it came through, that I really enjoyed writing because yeah, he was yeah. such an interesting figure who, um, also a tragic one in many ways. I mean, he died in poverty. He, all of his schemes never really went anywhere. But what, what I wanted to use that chapter and his work um, to do was to basically identify many of the themes that I talk about in the book, um, which are, for example, the relationship between deforestation and climate change. And that is something that comes out of the 18th century, but is only really developed in the 19th century um, and the whole science of climatology. And um, again, Rauch was no great, um, he wasn't Arago, for example, um, but he uh, was an important figure, and you find that um, he's read at the popular level. And one of the things that I was very interested in in this book, and it's something which I think in particular um, historians of science and technology and dealing with similar kinds of issues don't do enough of, um, is reception and diffusion of ideas. You know, how they trickle down, how how to people understand them at the popular level, not just the great thinkers themselves. And so that's what I was really trying to accomplish, is to identify themes and issues that I would pick up elsewhere, including his, um, I mean, he had all these (laughs) strange enterprises, the Annale Européenne, including um, thinking about um, climate issues and nature and the natural world in a global context. It isn't just France, it isn't just uh, the continent of Europe, but how this is linked together. And he actually addresses issues of empire um, mm-hmm. in, in his work, uh, which I yeah. pick up with later. Yeah, yeah it's interesting uh, how he uses the political climate of the late 18th and early 19th century to you know, move from a sort of super nationalistic sort of mm-hmm. Napoleonic warfare time, and then... Uh, in the uh, post-Napoleonic, uh, you know, um, uh, concert of Europe era, he sort of embraces uh, this sort of internationalism. Yes. Uh, and that internationalism comes up again, but it comes up in a, in a different uh, way when the French sort of engage with empire. And we can talk about how French understandings of empire sort of uh, make this sort of international um, kind of world scientific community. Yeah, and, oh. and what, what's also what, one of the things that w- was very surprising to me, um, I mean, when I started this book, I was not expecting to work on the French Empire. And then mm. it became very, very clear that I could not write this book without bringing the empire in to it. Um, and conceptions of nature and way people thought about things were different in metropolitan France and the empire. And then the other thing that I was not expecting is that the French would be in the early 20th century actually at the forefront of the first kind of international conferences Mm -hmm. um, in 1923 and then in 1933. And then, of course, there's 
you know, the famous uh, sort of international conference to protect the wildlife of Africa um, in the in the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, sort of jumping ahead a little bit, is that also it is sort of, you know, sort of like um, archaeology of knowledge as well. You know, so the Europeans, the, the French in this case, understand the value of the climate and flora and fauna and preserving them. And uh, it, it's towards the end of the book, you talk about how uh, this is used in Algeria as as a, a means to uh, you just sort of push Arabs out of governance mm-hmm. of their environment, <laughs> not even just, mm-hmm. a, you know, mm-hmm like political voice, but actually sort of out, out of the, the managing of their environment entirely mm-hmm. and degrading them for being, you know, having, you know, so-called backward ideas on how to manage the land. And, well, the, and that they are, they don't know how to be the stewards of the land. That it's, yeah. it's only really the French that know how to do this. And, and the French are not alone in this. I mean, um, that chapter was very much influenced by Guha in his book, The Unquiet Woods, where he talks about very similar kinds of, of uh, phenomenon that went on in, in India with respect to forests and the management of land. And you find it um, in Southern Africa as well. Um, but uh, the French were a bit different in that they thought that they were the inheritors of Rome, the Roman Empire. Sure, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting that that, that sort of uh, uh, notion of, of decay in the 1930s, is it manifests itself uh, acutely in their discourse of, on the environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, let's, let's, let's pull back and just sort of talk a little bit about Chapter 2 and, and uh, the French Forest Ordinance. We mentioned it at the beginning, talking about how uh, the forests were sort of seen as this uh, valuable... Uh, store of military goods in a certain sense that, you know, if you cut down all the trees and, and let um, the market sort of decide mm-hmm. their value, they would be cut down for fuel. Mm-hmm. And that the royal decree actually protected them. But when the the French uh, monarchy was taken down, there was this, this period of chaos where, you know, uh, the, the French revolutionaries understand the value of the environment, but they don't really know how to have a... Um, Kujit policy on how to protect it. No, because it's all associated with um, royal protectionism. And mm-hmm. one of the big impulses of the French Revolution was to liberalize, liberalize everything. And mm-hmm. they liberalized professions so that nobody, everybody had a right to, 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 to pursue any profession that they wanted to, which was not allowed in the old regime. Um, so it was part of the whole liberalizing campaign and yet, gradually over time, people realized it had consequences, and um, and there and even proponents of that liberalization, um, <coughs> whom I mentioned, Rougier La Bergerie, um, basically just made it made a U-turn on it and said, "No, we've got we've got to change all of this." So it was a particular moment. Probably the sort of so-called devastations of the French Revolution have been exaggerated. Many um, historians of the 18th century uh, think that that is so, but it definitely led to the 1827 Forest Code, where, you know, at least some kind of um, state provisions were put in place to regulate uh, forests. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, It seems almost kind of familiar. It seems like perhaps something that would happen 
you know, uh, even in like uh, the, the 20th century in, in post-Soviet time where, you know, the, there's this sort of monopoly on resources and then there's this period in the 90s where there's this chaos mm-hmm. and during liberalization and then, then they have to have whole new, uh, a whole new, um, you know, uh, regulation regime put in place mm-hmm. that, that might not necessarily be initially adequate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting, though, that throughout Chapter 2, these... Uh, all the characters, and, and one of the great things about this book is that you do people the the environmental history. Mm-hmm. You know, so often we sort of read uh, environmental history that are all sort of organizations that are faceless. Yeah. And it's one of the great things that you you accomplished in this is that giving you gave these these um, uh, actors sort of voice and, and face and sort of made them part of their time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like just as a writer, did you did you? Uh, shape that deliberately or was that that you know just something that kind of came along when you were writing uh, your book uh, I think I did it um, deliberately for the very reason that that <laughs> that uh, you you uh, or the for, for the reason that you suggest which is that I find a lot of um, you know discussions of some some of these issues to be very disembodied you know you kind of where did the where does it come from what sort of individual is espousing this what, um, where are they located politically, where are they located socially. Um, and I think that um, it gives the story a texture, which is important. And and so so I, I, I did deliberately do that. I mean, I, I really went out, I mean, I certainly did that in the first chapter and did serious research on each of these people. I really wanted to find um, find out all I could to understand how they arrived at the ideas that they arrived at. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yes, I mean, that, I'm, I'm glad that you see this as, as, as something that I, that's in there and because it's certainly what I've tried to do. Yeah, and also sort of as like a, a I guess, it, it kind of an intellectual history. You, t- you talk about how so many of these, these uh, actors... Uh, Bergerie, uh, in particular, ha- come out of the physiocratic tradition. Mm-hmm. So they do have this sort of idea that, okay, well, this is about uh, land and it's about water and it's about agriculture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain point where, you know, these things are, are affected negatively by deforestation. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about, maybe we can go back and talk about sort of the role of forests and, and the discourses on their value and, and how people sort of thought that they might be... Um, responsible for droughts and floods. It's a huge part of your book where you're talking about water management and how deforestation sort of exacerbates uh, sort of uh, flooding in France across the 19th century. I mean, the other thing which I was not expecting to find when I started the book and doing the research on the book is this obsession with floods and Mm -hmm. the fact that there were so many really major floods in the 19th century, in particular the 1856 flood, and of course the 1910 flood, which in which Paris was almost completely underwater. And it was quite ironical that the book came out um, the end of March, early April, depending on, I don't know exactly know when it went to the bookstores. But uh, I then, I was in France from March to July this year, and I don't know whether you followed the news, but there was a huge flood in Paris, 
And I went down to the, you know, I mentioned in the book the Zouave statue, which is Mm -hmm. the popular marker for how high the uh, water levels are and so on. And so I always saw this sort of, you know, right before my eyes, this kind of recreation of what I had been studying and what I'd been reading. And I found it, you know, very interesting that just the connections that are made between forests, uh, water management, water purity um, in, 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 some, in some cases. And what also I think I, I, I wanted to, I mean, this is a study of, of France, France and France's empire, um, is that the story, I mean, you, you um, have studied uh, Britain. The story is very different in Britain. I mean, the British are not obsessed with forests. Forest isn't very a big part of of British environmentalism. It's really, I mean, you've spoken. Uh, Thorsheim also wrote it. I think it was his first book. British environment, other other sort of countries' environmentalisms are shaped by different conditions. And in Britain, it was really because you know this was an industrial country. France is not an industrial country. It wasn't until after the First World War. Sure. It means. You know, I mean, it, it industrialized, but it never really had an you know industrial revolution, and it was very it was it was a predominantly rural country um, until nineteen really the nineteen twenties. Mm-hmm. So the story of you know how people think about the environment, protect the environment, are very much determined by economies, and I think that's why forests were are so central to this subject in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be. In Britain, um, Germany is a more complicated. Place. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to at some point in the interview talk about German Romanticism and, and talk about uh, sort of uh, in, in Germany there is this sort of long history of romanticizing forests and hills, and, you know, Vondern and all all yeah. this. And, and in in your book there is there is um, definitely hints at a sort of similar French Romanticism. Sure, sure. Um, as an inheritance, like a, you know uh, we. Towards the end of the book, um, when you're talking about uh, protecting um, uh, forests at Fontainebleau, you yes. talk about how it, it, it originally is this sort of place where painters kind of go for inspiration. Yes. But eventually be, it becomes this sort of bourgeois and then middle class uh, symbol for, you know, French identity yep. that sort of transcends it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it becomes a, it becomes heritage, it becomes patrimoine, um, and you know it's it's very interesting to 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 think about this comparing it to a very different sort of language but uh articulated in an, in a different form in the United States this kind of valorization of wilderness which doesn't exist in France it's the it's the historic forests and so on and that's why you know i found um the whole uh, i was very amused by it actually this whole debate about the you know, introducing pines into the forest and and so forth. So, so funny. You know, these are not French trees; they're Russian trees. They shouldn't be here. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's this interesting tension as well on this sort of idea that that France wants to take in all these sort of foreign botanical species and try to try to, especially in the 18th century, but even in the 19th century, they're trying to experiment with what's going to grow best in France and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but again, like they're 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 you know Russian trees, you know, like they're they're. Um, I believe there's a scheme to have breadfruit yes. or something in Paris that you talk about, and and these things are so kind of 
alien in some sense, but also the, the sort of ex, uh, spirit of experimentation and discovery is is very com- like. Yes, um, and and, I, and I think um, the other the other aspect of the book that I, I you know wanted to to show as well is the is really the importance of what was in the old regime the Jardin du Roi or the Museum of Natural History. I mean, you see it's important in the revolution and um, also very important in those international conferences. Um, many people associated, and many people in, Al- in Algeria who were talking about deforestation, they're associated with the Museum of Natural History um, as well. And, you know, just very, very surprising things. I mean, for the earlier part of the book in terms of this Museum of Natural History and responsible for bringing in these breadfruits and so on into the country and climatizing animals and plants. I mean, I found it amazing that in 1793, in really the most radical phase of the revolution, French had a lot to worry about. There was a civil war. They were at war with all of Europe. And the staff at the Museum of Natural History were going around and getting the plants out of the gardens of the aristocrats who were getting arrested and executed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that they, they were collecting plants. I mean, it, it's it's really quite surreal if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that that is that's actually, yeah, I didn't I didn't think of it quite like that. But yeah, you're right. You're right. You do talk about that. That that is. Um, I don't know that 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 spirit of discovery, even in times of uh, sort of uh, rapid change or, or violence, or is is something that you know maybe there's a PhD dissertation on that. <laughs> you know, trying to divorce yourself from reality to have the sense of discovery, or hmm. yeah, I don't know that that's interesting. One of the things that that I also wanted to talk to talk to you about is you talk about not only sort of maintaining the environment as this sort of monument and this sort of heritage, but you also talk a lot, quite often actually, um, about um, its relationship to health, mm-hmm. especially in um, uh, era of Louis Napoleon and, and trying to remake, um, remake Paris, but also try to make um, this sort of um, rationalized, clean environment, originally for the sort of uh, upper middle class bourgeoisie, and then it kind of goes down to the working class by the 1930s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an important part of, um, um, especially the last chapter, the greeting of Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really what frequently is called in France the the hygiene revolution. Um, I mean, the whole notion of of hygiene um, emerges in thinking about pollution in cities um, of of various kinds. And um, you only have the first sort of chair of hygiene um, in the university system in the late 18th century. And this is also something that feeds very, very directly into um, concerns about the environment. Simply, you know, you're killing people with the environment. Therefore, you've got to have some kind of regulation in terms of where you put manufacturing concerns. And actually one of the most um, uh, far, you know, kind of progressive and far-reaching was put in place in the Napoleonic period, um, which was surprising to me in part because, as I've said, you know, France was really not like Britain, um, industrializing at a great, very great pace. 
But this is a constant concern primarily in urban areas from the 1830s, 1840s, um, right up to the, the First World War. Yes. Also, there, it's really interesting when you're talking, uh, especially in Chapter 3 and Chapter 4, about um, Napoleon III and uh, his, his sort of actions to try to seem like he was doing something after all these floods. Mm-hmm. And one of these, one of the things that you show really, really uh, acutely is that he was a great propagandist. He used uh, the new science of uh, new technology of photographs, and he also had paintings um, commissioned of him, like visiting flood zones and yeah. acting like he was, you know, uh, this engaged leader that was helping people. Right, um, and and I think that that is actually very interesting because. That is also um, something that it be- becomes part of the modern world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the 18th century, yes, you had the king, if some natural disaster happened, it was terrible, and the king tried to help, and certainly the church and so on. But the whole notion, what I did find in, in my research is that at the very popular level, the people of France increasingly began to think that the government actually had a role in doing something about these problems that you couldn't just sort of, you know, leave them. They happened. Uh, you had you had to set up some kind of mechanism. And one of the things I found very interesting is that Napoleon III actually um, asked the French people to write to him and tell him, "Do you have any ideas about what to do about these floods?" Um, and they did. And in the National Archives in Paris, um, there are about uh, 10 boxes that I went through of these responses of people. I mean, many of them are crazy, um, blaming the government, you didn't do this right, and the Office of Bridges and Roads, and so on and so forth. And I find that interesting. I mean, when you think, even take it, let's say, to the United States, think about Katrina and the whole notion of should a leader go down there and mm-hmm. uh, remember the whole controversy about Bush didn't go there. Um, sure. And, and I think that um, this is the first time in France that you have this leader who really um, mediatizes um, an environmental disaster in, in a very significant way. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it at, um, a very acute use of, of sort of a national uh, crisis to sort of, uh, increase or, or cement your national power. Mm-hmm. This is a very interesting uh, kind of idea. The other thing I um, wanted to just um, mention about this is that, um, you know, as I said at the beginning, I mean, I really wanted to look at this question from all angles, economic, social. Mm-hmm. And then one of them is the political. Getting back to my very early statements about, you know, people dating envir- French environmentalism to the 1960s, um, Michael Bess in particular, um, you know, arguing that one can only consider something being environmentalism when it's on the left wing of the political spectrum. But as you see in my book, it isn't located really, it's located in a lot of different places. And Napoleon III is actually one of the most right-wing authoritarian figures you can imagine, and yet the the um, the measures uh, that were taken to uh, the reforestation measures and various measures that were taken were actually put in place 
in that very authoritarian period. So mm-hmm. I think it it makes one want to rethink, um, you know, environmentalism. What it, what does it mean exactly politically? Um, it, uh, historically, it has all it's not always been anywhere located anywhere in particular. And then the other thing, I mean, the chapter I'm just talking about the politics of this on Algeria, on the anxieties of empire, is that, you know, sometimes environmental protection or, you know, the the concern about reforestation and the Algerians don't know how to manage the land and we've got to, you know, kind of get them off the land and and so on. Um, There's a dark, there can be a darker side to environmentalism in terms of the human cost, let's say, to pastoral populations, um, you know, grazing sheep in the mountains or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's important to note that environmentalism does have this history or prehistory of uh, paternalism. Yeah. You know, it's a very paternal. We know better than you. You know, like, we know how to manage the environment and you don't, you know. Um, and our objectives are inherently more important than your objectives, mm-hmm. these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Then Napoleon, the third thing is very, very interesting, and being sort of a like like you say a, a quite far right empire at that time, but also sort of being engaged with the environment, and we wouldn't call it sort of our familiar kind of green left no. environmentalism. No, um, and maybe has some sort of analog with the 1930s in Germany exactly. or something. Yeah, some yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, occasionally there there are books. Um, uh, I forget who wrote it, but how green were the Nazis, these sort of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it's less a discussion that has gone on in France um, because we don't have quite exactly, you know, we did have the Vichy regime and in... Uh, during the German occupation, which was which was a very right wing, quasi fascist regime, but I mean, it's not quite the same thing as the Nazis. But some of the same issues, you know, could be raised uh, very legitimately in the in the French context. Yeah, this idea of kind of a cultural regeneration as well as an environmental yeah. regeneration. Yeah, yeah, and it, there is this tension in your book also at points where it seems like it, it, it's more protection of this, this sort of imagined environment at certain points rather than a, a sort of regeneration. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these sites are, are historically important sites and um, they want to keep uh, uh, important sites uh, in, in the city of Paris but in other places uh, to keep the sort of uh, imagined, mm-hmm. uh, imagined past alive in a certain sense. That's a sort of propaganda or, mm-hmm. as, as we said, a heritage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's super interesting. It's one of the things I really liked about your book. Um, I think this might be a good time to talk about empire and the role of these um, uh, international conventions mm-hmm. and and how the French understood their role as it, the role of uh, protecting the environment in the imperial project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what is interesting about um, many of these initiatives, I think, is it comes out of a whole a uh, set of associations which have not been um, studied very closely, um, such as the Society for the Protection of the Landscapes of France, the the Alpine Club, you know, there are a whole series of different kinds of 
clubs and associations that really um, are located in civil society um, that come together or the Society for the Protection of Birds in, in, in very important ways in France. And it's actually these organizations in, and there are some sort of quasi-governmental organizations such as the um, Acclimatization Society that was established in 1853 in the, in the Museum of Natural History. Um, but it's, it's very interesting that actually these international initiatives did, were sponsored by states um, and by individual countries, but they actually came from civil society, not just in France. Um, and it's these organizations that called for um, the first Congress for the Protection of Nature, which was held in Paris, um, the second one, um, and then moved into, they really began um, on the European continent um, among various European associations and organizations of similar kinds, um, also those wanting to create uh, for the first time parks um, or reserves of, of various kinds, some modeled on one of the first, the Yellowstone Park in the 1870s. And, and, um, mm -hmm. and it's also very significant to me that um, there was a park, a national park established in France uh, which I talk about in 1913 in an alpine region of France. But the first system of parks were established in Algeria, French Algeria, not in France, yeah. not in metropolitan France. And the, once again, the obsession with forests, it was forested land. And uh, this was followed by Madagascar uh, as well. So this is a kind of of movement that comes out of civil society <clears throat> is primarily focused on Europe and then gradually extends to empire at a moment where you have really the height of the European empires, which is the 19, 1930s. Sure, sure. Um, it is interesting you mentioned uh, when they're trying to make up this, this new system of, of parks. They look at the United States and they're like, oh, well... Mm -hmm it would be really hard to build uh, or, or find a Yellowstone equivalent in Algeria. Yeah. But they they have their own sort of system of, you know, trying to protect the, the forests. And, and, and partially it's because it's it's deemed essential to the imperial project because if they get rid of the forests, it might not be as habitable for European right. settlement. Right. And that, that's something that, that uh, is, is just... It, it's something uh, sort of capturing a snapshot of, the, like you said, the anxieties of the 1930s. Yeah, it would not be be um, habitable. And then there's this whole kind of, you know, you know, sort of very strange rhetoric of how um, you have to restore this landscape of of, of northern Africa to resemble as much as possible the Mediterranean landscape actually of France or or on the other side of the Mediterranean and this, you know, great fear of the encroachment of the deserts that is associated actually with this whole language of of um, the invasion of the Muslim hordes. So it's almost a kind of apocalyptic, civilizational um, uh, narrative that becomes embedded in an environmental narrative. 
um, in a very in a very strange way. I think one could say. <laughs> yeah. No. No. It, it it is really interesting on how the sort of the the encroachment of the desert on uh, Algeria is just is just sort of byword or, or metaphor for this sort of idea that that maybe. Uh, the Arabs will take control of Algeria and the French will sort of lose their sort of crown jewel of their empire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was also interesting too because, and you and you talk about this, um, you know, we we often, people that study empires or talk, want to talk about this imperial project um, as, as it, if it is entirely deliberate and well organized all the time. And you talk about how it was incredibly difficult to get the disparate uh, interests to pick where these reserves would be and how uh, these this land should be managed and you know mm-hmm. if all of the forest should be saved or some of it and you know you have the state and the Pitbar, um settlers and then you also have you know sort of native Algerians trying to trying to you know uh, they have different stakes in this environmental yeah. Uh, discourse yeah yeah no and and that's actually something throughout the whole book that I wanted to emphasize, not just there, um, but the kind of cacophony of, in terms of the voices, um, you know, calling for protection and the reasons for it. There's no unif- there's really no unified project, in fact, and there are a lot of, of competing interests, and you can certainly see it in, in, the, in uh, the context of French colonial Algeria, but you can also see it in France. Um, I mean, the other example of this would be in the forest of Fontainebleau. The painters thought, you know, that they had a very clear idea of you should have these artistic reserves where nobody should go in it except for the painters or the people who enjoyed it. Um, and the foresters also thought that they were protecting the environment, but they had a very different idea. You manage it. You don't just let it go wild, which is what the painters thought. And so... They both thought that you know they were, in, in essence, protecting the environment, but for in different ways and for different reasons and with different strategies. And so, it shows you actually how difficult it was, um, whether you're talking about the empire or metropolitan France, to bring groups together. For sure, yeah. I mean, one of the great things about your book is is that that's so familiar in our yeah. age. You know, we have serious environmental challenges. And, you know, they're, they're all, we, we sort of understand that we have these problems, but not everyone has sort of invested in resolving them. <laughs> and, and we have this sort of um, interesting, again, cacophony of voices. And oftentimes it's the loudest people that get the most airtime. And, you know, that's not always you know, conducive to actually having a policy that works yeah. for, for the most, you know. Yeah. But, but it's interesting I do to think see. that, I mean, this whole question of, you know, making certain kinds of environments habitable for Europeans was an obsession among Europeans in all empires. I mean, um, and I'm thinking, let's say, um, you know, the work of Mark Harrison, Climates and Constitutions, you know, in India, you know, the whole debate about whether the British could actually acclimatize, and whether men could acclimatize, and women. And I found the whole gender dimension very interesting, too, in that uh, discussion of acclimatization. Um, And so there, you know, the stakes are are very high um, in all of these imperial colonial contexts. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a time where there, you know, there is still rather high 
uh, mortality rates, and you're investing a whole bunch of money in these mm-hmm. these sort of fall, far off lands. And you know, if, if you know the settlers die when they get there mm-hmm. uh, in droves, it's it's not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, no one's going to be able to agree that this is a this is a policy that they can follow. Yeah, and actually, there's a very interesting book um, um, by. Um, a colleague who teaches at Toronto, Eric Jennings, called Curing the Colonizer. And essentially it's about the spas that are um, created, for example, Vichy, and he studied uh, Southeast Asia, uh, Dalat, this kind of... And, and think of the British hill stations. You know, that, that mm-hmm. was part yeah. of the purpose of the, the hill stations to get the, the British up there in, you know, the, the hottest um, period of the year. And um, and Jennings actually makes an argument that where these kinds of spas or hill stations, whatever you want to call them, where they were um, created uh, was in places that resembled as much as possible the climates back home. Sure. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, it's, it is interesting. It, it, it uh, you know... <laughs> It sort of it makes this sort of you know big gaping hole of this sort of idea of European sort of uh, superiority when you have to go to a familiar climate you know, just to survive there for you know whatever the, the toughest part of the year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's let's talk about at getting towards the end now um, the greeting of Paris and 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 how the French government decided that that would be sort of the the new Paris, a sort of green, healthy, hygienic city as mm-hmm. opposed to sort of a, you know, um, okay. almost medieval, you know, post-medieval, you know, mm-hmm. um, unhealthy one. Okay. Well, actually, that um, is it's interesting because it's out of that chapter that um, my new project is born. Uh, okay. Excellent. Um, Excellent. So, and actually, I've, I've just started that project. I've almost finished the first article to come out of the project. And basically, um, the first article is is uh, is about the Paris housing crisis and the environmental revolution in domestic architecture is what it's called uh, on the eve of the First World War. And basically, I do talk about what is an eternal problem in Paris, which is how you've got it in New York, you've got it in lots of different places. A housing crisis, affordable housing for particularly the poor, um, the middle classes. But uh, all of those environmental hygienic concerns um, that I talk about in my book began to really be focused on discussions of what do we do about the housing crisis and how do we create housing that's affordable, but not only affordable, but Hygienic, and there's a whole debate that starts in the 1890s about we've got to create a new kind of architecture, and it can't be Houseman's Paris, and it can't be those kinds of buildings. You can no longer have these enclosed courtyards where the air doesn't circulate. You've got to think about the orientation of buildings. You've got to think about sunlight. You have to think about bringing green spaces in. All these concerns, which nobody really thought about before um, sure. suddenly become an issue. You have the first legislation that's passed um, that for the creation of affordable housing, for the first it's the poor and then it's for what we might call the middle class with modest means. Um, mm-hmm. And that continues into the post-World War uh, 
one period when you had the devastations in the cities and so on. And what's very interesting is it it leads to what I would argue is the transformation in architecture and in the built environment, um, which incorporates this these kinds of concerns. And it's a new hygienic environmental architecture. So um, that's when, you know, you're really kind of moving into the cities in a way most of my book does not, the natural interests, and looking at the relationship between all of the sort of ideas that I discuss in the book and then how this feeds into um, a built environment. What is the relationship between a built environment and a natural environment? And, of course, this is a, a period in which, um, you know, the concept of urbanism and the urbanist also is born. And so that's what I'm working on um, now. And I'm making a kind of argument that actually this environmental revolution in architecture is what leads to um, what one might call architectural modernism in, in the 1920s and 30s, I'm thinking about Art Deco and some of the... Um, I'm not talking about Le Corbusier, who uh, is my next. I was just going to say Corbusier, yeah. because I was like, oh, yeah. Because that, that he, he is not. He, he's not yeah. what I'm talking about. And, and the thing is, Luc Corbusier, I think, has sort of appropriated I modernism, and he isn't. And there's a whole other slew of architects I'm working on, young architects in particular, coming out of the Beaux-Arts, who, which is you know, elite architectural school in the world in this, in this period, uh, school of fine arts, who actually reject all the precepts and begin to think in these hygienic environmental ways.